Turgy, and we're going to talk dirty to the animals about the Gilda Radner episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! Hey everyone, I'm David Levy. Welcome back. So glad you're here. Today with me are... Christy Bauer, Michal Richardson, and Adam Grossworth. I don't think I understand. We have an, an addition, which is very stupid, but I, I will never miss a chance to be pedantic. In the Roy Clark episode, I mentioned that the live dog, well, they're all live, the Muppets are alive, but you know what I mean, the non-Muppet dog looked too big, and I uh, I made the gift for that episode after we recorded, and it's not only too big, it's entirely the wrong kind of dog. Like, it doesn't match Muppy in any way, and I'm angry about it. That's the addition, you just have more commentary? That's the edition. I have more pedantic, angry commentary. David, feel free to cut this. <laughs> I thought you had learned like whose dog played the dog. Nope, it's just, just annoyed that it's a sheepdog. <laughs> it's a gray sheepdog. It's very cute. It's super cute. Super cute, super not shaggy, puppy. super not the right dog. You're right. Just wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We are actually here this week to talk about Season 3, Episode 4 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of March 7th, 1978, and aired in New York on December 11th, 1978. It was lucky number 13 in the air order after our poofy-haired friend, Leo Sayer. In the news, The New York Times is back with us. On the front page, it is the biggest story of late 1978, and there's no avoiding it. There is a major development in the Jonestown case. Uh, Investigators have pretty much figured out what happened. Weirdly, this is what made me realize that we have also been, this entire time, concurrent with the original Tales of the City. The newspaper serial started in 76, and the first novel came out in 78. Um, And I think it's in the second book that Dee Dee narrowly escapes Guyana. So I'm now imagining Scooter leaving the Muppets and living a much happier life at Barbary Lane. Anyway, in politics, presented without comment, Democrats, under pressure, vote to praise Carter budget priorities. And Golda Meir's funeral is tomorrow. Um, In happier news, arms talks with the Soviets are going well. That's nice. I know. And the biggest airport robbery in this country was carried out at Kennedy Airport with meticulous planning and precision at a Lufthansa cargo facility. I just didn't know that that was a whole separate category, and I'm kind of delighted by it. Yeah, do you rob an airport like you rob a bank? Give me all your airplanes? Why isn't there a movie? There has to have been like a TV movie. Maybe this will come up on our TV movies at some point. What if it's but the only sh- airport robbery in the history of the country and also the biggest and also the smallest and also the <laughs> maybe <stickiest? laughs> it seems really hard to do even with 1978 security. All I know is I'm going to s- stop referring to things as highway robbery and start referring to them as airport robbery just to see w- what people say. There you yeah. go. Yeah. You sail up <laughs> to a, a port city airport in an aircraft carrier. Give us all your airplanes. The 82nd annual Christmas bird count is underway. It is, according to its sponsors, one of the few research operations in which amateurs can make valuable contributions to scientists. How many Christmas birds are there? Yeah, I was going to say, are they counting birds on Christmas or are they counting Christmas birds? I believe the former. I'm not a bird person. David Bukema, where are you when we need you? (laughs) Yes, please write to us. Is this like when they send people into the subway overnight? To count people who are sleeping in the subways? Well, that's a dark analogy, but yes, I think it is. They use volunteers to count the Christmas birds sleeping in the subway. Okay, I get it. We're doing great. Yes, we will have links on the show page if you would like to read more about the Christmas bird count. 
despite it being the Christmas season, uh, the ads this week are not great, but there is a, uh, a Walden books ad, um, which we'll have a screenshot of on the show page. Just some good, we don't really talk about books ever on the podcast, but, um, there's some, it's a good little pop culture snapshot of December, 1978. Um, there's also some fun tech ads. CB radios are, are a, a big thing at this moment in time. Thanks to convoy and others. Speaking of Convoy, on the Cashbox pop charts, not Convoy, but the number one song is You Don't Bring Me Flowers, and the number one album is Billy Joel's 52nd Street. And of course, on television, uh, opposite The Muppet Show, um, In Search of Bermuda Triangle Pirates, very relevant to our interest this week. And uh, following The Muppet Show, a rerun of A Flintstone Christmas, which raises a lot of theological questions. Huh. <laughs> I'm thinking about this. I didn't expect to think about this today. And here we are. You're welcome. NBC's movie is A Woman Called Moses, uh, starring Cicely Tyson as Harriet Tubman. That one's actually still a little bit famous. And on The Tonight Show, Bob Newhart is the guest host, and the guests are Debbie Reynolds, Wayne Rogers, and Doug Henning. And that just sounds like a fun party. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Gilda Radner was one of the original Not Ready for Primetime players, whose love affair with Gene Wilder and battle with ovarian cancer captured the fascination of the American public. Gilda was born in 1946 in Detroit, and she tells a story about how her family hated the winter so much they spent four months out of every year in Florida, so she was constantly bouncing between schools in two states and therefore never made a lot of friends. As a child, she struggled with disordered eating from the time she was nine years old. When she was 12, her father died of brain cancer. She attended the University of Michigan, but dropped out before graduating to follow a boyfriend to Canada. She got her first professional acting gig in the legendary Toronto cast of Godspell, alongside Eugene Levy, Andrea Martin, Victor Garber, Martin Short, and Paul Schaefer. Soon after, she joined Second City, and before long, she was the very first performer cast in a new show called Saturday Night Live. She was a breakout star in a cast full of breakout stars, creating a number of recurring characters who quickly became audience favorites. In 1978, she won an Emmy for her work on the show. In 1979, she created and starred in a one-woman show, Gilda Radner, Live from New York, that played Broadway, toured, and was released both as an album and a film, which was directed by Mike Nichols. It featured material too dirty for NBC's censors, such as the song, Let's Talk Dirty to the Animals. The animals, the animals, let's talk dirty to the animals, fuck you, Mr. Bunny, eat shit, Mr. Bear, if they don't love it, they can shove it, frankly, I don't care. In the early 80s, she toured in a play and married one of the musicians from her live show, but in 1982, her life changed when she met Gene Wilder on the set of the film Hanky Panky. By 1984, the pair had left their previous partners to marry each other. In 1985, she began suffering symptoms that would turn out to be ovarian cancer. She had a painful public struggle, but after the cancer went into remission, she wrote an upbeat memoir of the experience that took its title from one of her SNL catchphrases, It's Always Something. In December of 1988, however, she learned the cancer had returned and she died in May of 1989. In the wake of her death, Jean Wilder devoted time and money to raising awareness of hereditary cancers, encouraging those with family histories of cancer to screen more aggressively for the disease. In 1991, Jean teamed up with Joanna Bull, who had been on Gilda's cancer support team, and TV film critic Joel Siegel to found Gilda's Club, a network of cancer support houses. 
This network later merged with the wellness community, which was the community that Gilda found her own cancer support in, and it lives on today under the name Cancer Support Community. In 1990, Radner won a posthumous Grammy Award for the audiobook of It's Always Something. The memoir was adapted for television in 2002 with Jamie Gertz playing Gilda Radner, and in 2003, she received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So, it's funny... I realized that I think her memoir was actually my first exposure to her, not because I read it as a kid, but I have very distinct memories of my mom reading it when it came out because, you know, by the time I was old enough to even be aware of Saturday Night Live, I think Gilda had already left the cast as had the rest of the original cast. And past that, the Muppet show was probably the first time I saw her in something. Although, you know, she did a bunch of movies, none of which were particularly good, but I definitely remember haunted honeymoon uh, which was one that she did with Gene Wilder that that uh, had a lot of buildup and then bombed spectacularly. But I'm wondering uh, what everyone else has in terms of Gilda Radner memories. I mean, SNL was definitely a big deal in my house as a kid. And so I didn't see her in her original run. I'm, I'm too young for that. But anytime there was a best of SNL special, we watched them. And think even had like VHS tapes and stuff. So like she loomed large as like that kind of like already in the pantheon comic presence when I was a kid. Um, I highly recommend the documentary that came out about her three or four years ago, Love Gilda. I found it really great, really sad because a lot of it focuses on her illness and the later part of her life and career. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. The Those early SNLs were in reruns a lot. Uh, when I was a kid, at, like on VH1 and Comedy Central, and, and sort of often chopped up and shortened. So I I remember watching those, and we we t- I think we talked about it on the actually the Candace Bergen episode. One of my favorite sketches is her and Candace Bergen, and Candace Bergen breaks, and Gilda not only does not break, but makes like very deliberately makes Candace Bergen break more, <laughs> to the point where the sketch is just destroyed, and it's. The, it's so much funnier than I think the sketch would have been. Like, you know, part of me is like, oh, that's so, that's so unprofessional. Like, they, they should, they should do their jobs. But it's so funny to just like watch her ruin Candace Bergen, <laughs> and and like just the, the the pure joy that both of them are clearly having in this moment of live television. And and I remember that like even more than like any of her recurring her recurring characters. I'll, I'll, I think we put that in the Candace Bergen show notes. I'll. I'll try to find it if we didn't it was because i couldn't find it so it's I definitely available it. on peacock if not as an individual clip then as you know, yes in the yes because all, all the episodes all the episodes are there but yeah this episode is also um a spoiler a favorite but always has been and i know i know my mom was a fan of her and her characters so yeah she was kind of around i guess a lot of my awareness of gilda radner first came about when gene wilder was working on this gilda's club thing and promoting the idea. And there were retrospectives on television just talking about how great Gilda Radner had been. So even though I didn't watch it in the original run, her SNL characters are still branded into my memory. And I know my mom like quotes Emily Latella all the time. Yeah. So it's a thing that we think about in my family, with Gilda Radner's legacy. Why don't you get Christy, yes. how was this episode for you? Perfect 10. No notes. I mean, I've got notes, but <laughs> <That's your job>. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, favorite episode of the season so far, maybe possibly top five episode period, you know, we'll see as we go on. But yeah, it's got some of my favorite numbers in it. It's got what I think is maybe the best backstage plot payoff that we've had yet. 
And the thing that I really like about it is, you know, Gilda's a legend for so many reasons and on her own, she's hilarious, but she's also, and this is like the early SNL pedigree showing through a really brilliant team player. And I think that's part of what makes this so special. I love it. David. I think this might be my favorite episode that we've seen so far. Uh, I just really liked it. And what's interesting to me is there's a lot of stuff about the way the episode is constructed that on paper, I would say, shouldn't work or shouldn't work as well as it does, but the whole is greater than the sum of its parts or it just, you know, her charm and ease and hilarity all just like makes it work. So uh, yeah, I just, I loved it. Michal. Oh man, what a, a freaking delight this episode is. Definitely up there among my favorites as well. I think I'm uh, the only points that I will deduct from this episode are that I got a little bit frustrated by the structure and the pacing, which David was saying shouldn't work. And there were a couple of things about it for me that didn't work because you start off with episode highlights and all-time Muppet Show highlights. I <laughs> I knew the GNS medley was coming and still I screamed when I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> and then with 10 minutes remaining to the episode, they suddenly introduce a backstage plot, which in the moment for me was a little frustrating. It still pays off and it's still wonderful. And Gilda Radner is still wonderful. And the finale is still very rewarding, but it doesn't hit the highs of the first couple numbers of the episode. That said, there are a lot of highs in this episode and it's great. Yeah, I can see that. You know, it never occurred to me until you pointed it out, but yeah, it, it is a little bit like they had two ideas and neither of them was quite enough for a full episode. So they just did two halves, but I love those two halves so much that I, I can't complain you know, with the caveat that I haven't seen most of seasons four and five in a really long time because they were not released on DVD in their entirety. Uh, this week's and spoiler next week's are my top two of all time. I just think they're they're about as close to perfect as we're going to get. It's just so good. It makes me so happy. And, you know, something might come along in uh, seasons four and five that, that knock it off its perch, but it's going to be hard to do. Yeah, I was excited for this episode. And then I looked ahead to what the next couple episodes were. I'm like, oh, man, we're in... We're starting off a really good stretch with this. It's a good run. Yeah. Yeah. Really looking forward to the next few weeks. Well, a Scooter, what's all this fuss I keep hearing about me doing the muffin show? <laughs> I mean, what kind of a show is it about muffins? Why, the next thing you know, they'll have me doing a show with rye bread or little tiny lovely biscuits. Why, I can't do a show like that. Excuse it's outrageous. Me, it's, I can't excuse believe. me, ma'am. What? Ma it's not the muffin show. It's the Muppet show. Oh, that's very different. Never mind. <laughs> uh, it's her character, Emily Latella. Can I tell you guys the last costume that I built for this past forum was inspired by the Emily Latella rant about violins on television? I, I built a gratuitous violins costume that was inspired by her. <laughs> it was one really big violin that had a gratuitous number of other cardboard violins glued to it. So thanks, Gilda. <laughs> My mother, I'm pretty sure, cannot say the words never mind without saying them like Emily Latella. It's definitely not annoying at all. <laughs> yeah. My mother also <laughs> says never mind as though it is... Her job, which it is not. I don't think she even knows she's doing it anymore. I think it's yeah. Just, it's just how she says, "Never mind." It's like an accent. Uh, elsewhere in the opening, 
we instead of a Statler and Waldorf clip this week, we've got another Gonzo bit. I always get butterflies before I show. Not this time. Ah! <laughs> I love Soviet a book butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> the butterfly puppet is great. I mean, we've seen them before, but it makes me so happy. Yeah. In Soviet Russia, butterfly gets you. This is the giant butterfly puppet that we've seen before clubbing Gonzo, but as in hitting him with a club. Yes. Gonzo is backstage. He is never going to make his cue. Uh, that was my thought, too. I periodically have this worry, and then I get chastised that this is television, and it's fine. Uh, when he does get there, Gonzo blows his trumpet, and what comes out is what the wiki calls red smoke. It just kind of looked like smoke to me, and then he hiccups. Maybe vaguely pinkish. Yeah. It just looked like fog or smoke. And then he hiccups, which is cute. Two points. Uh, one, still no book. Yep. <laughs> Two, there's also a weird foghorn sound with it this week. And it just reminded me of any time I hear that sort of like ship foghorn sound, it reminds me of the scene in Ghostbusters 2 <laughs> where the Titanic arrives. <laughs> That's and, where this is going. <laughs> and yep, yep. And, and and Cheech Marin just says, well, better late than never. So like anytime I hear like a I think, well, better late than never. So That's a weird place to go with that even for us that's another direction to take it yeah it does suggest that it's fog and therefore not red sorry i'm up at wiki we love you but weird everybody's doing their best yeah i'm up at joe backstage yes so backstage there is some sticky business more than halfway through the episode i did the math it's 59 percent of the way through the episode <laughs> With 10 minutes remaining, uh, we suddenly learn that there's a plot this week and that that plot stickens. Well, you see, I don't mind assisting, but I'm not crazy about the idea of guinea pigging. Mm-hmm. There we go. Blink. There. I have just placed on Gilda's forehead a single teensy-weensy drop of Muppet's new super adhesive. Now we'll wait a moment for it to get tacky. What are we waiting for? For it to get tacky. Well, another first on this show. How's that? Well, it's the first time we've had to wait for it to get tacky. <laughs> <laughs> Things don't go the way that Bunsen has planned. There is a drop of glue on Gilda's forehead, but there are soon drops of glue everywhere on the Muppet Lab set and then just everywhere in the theater. On the camera lens. Yeah, on the camera lens, which is a nice touch. Bunsen is so condescending to to Gilda during this, like, you know, which I guess he is to Beaker too, but he calls her Gilda Pooh and then refers to himself as Uncle Bunny. And it really bothered me. Yeah, shut it down. Yeah. Gilda Pooh. She's she's not a dog breed. And this is also all sprung on her that like any of this is even happening. Like at least Beaker kind of knows what he signed up for. But man, when when Gilda finds out that she's the one who's the guinea pig this week, Beaker starts snickering, and it's the greatest <laughs> thing. It's true, but then when the glue starts going everywhere, Beaker freaks the fuck out <laughs> in a way that, like, I actually found very upsetting. And the closed captioning refers to Beaker shrieking, <laughs> which is accurate. That is exactly what he's doing. But I, even more than usual, I mean, that's what he does all the time. But yeah, this is very descriptive. Yeah, <laughs> these closed captions. Yeah, I thought he said Uncle Honey rather than Uncle Bunny. It could go either way. Bunsen Honeydew could be Uncle Bunny or Uncle Honey, but neither is good. Oh, that's true. Either way, I don't like it. Yeah, don't condescend to Gilda Redner. 
she deserves better. Don't call yourself Uncle Bunny. <laughs> like, don't call her Giltapoo. Like everything about it is so creepy. <laughs> anyway, it's your favorite episode. Here we go. It is. It is. <laughs> Seen is part of why. I just these things you notice when you're doing a podcast. Okay, for the rest of the episode, everything just keeps sticking to everything else. Everybody keeps sticking to everybody else. Fleet Scribbler calls up Kermit to get a statement, and Kermit sticks to the phone. Uh, a Gilda, a reporter would like to know, what is the secret of your success? Kermit, can I talk to you for a second? Uh, well, I guess you could just say that she has stuck with it. Oh, yeah, yeah, and in the little time I've known her, she's really cemented our friendship. We're <laughs> close friends, but this is ridiculous. The escalation, both the labs scene, like as more things get stuck to more things and Beaker freaks out and Gilda freaks out and, and Uncle Bunny freaks out. Um, <laughs> Jesus and then, like, then they all sort of the, the clump of them come backstage, and like more things get just like the physical comedy is so good, and it just escalates. And just I, I, this is one other one of the things like I would I would love so much to be able to see film of what it looked like, like underneath <laughs> what the puppeteers yeah, oh. looked like as they were doing all of this. It must have been chaos. <laughs> Not only all the Muppets katamari each other and just roll each other up, but then all the performers have to also. <laughs> yeah, I would like to see that. Before they get katamaried into everybody else, uh, Kermit and Piggy get stuck together, which would have made a fun episode on its own. Oh, this fucking worry, my oh, Piggy, don't touch me! Oh, uh, now I'm stuck on you! Oh, at last, my frog wants me! Oh, thank you! Will you, will you will get away from me? Do we ever have a, like, Kermit and Piggy are stuck in a freezer together or in an elevator kind of episode? Well, those 17 seconds are the closest we get. And I like it. Piggy, you're putting all your weight on me. Maybe we shall be stuck like this forever. I don't think I can go on supporting you that long. If you think I'm going to go out and work. She's a star, but she has her standards. Even if it doesn't quite make sense for who she is, it is a well-delivered, well-written line. There is a very cute payoff at the finale. And then in the outro, we see this whole glob of Muppets and Gilda Radner dragging itself on stage, including some of the pigs from the opening number and the the carrot from the GNS number. And Gilda is glued to some bits of the sides of the theater. They're all just stuck to each other and they all just scoot, 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 scoot out. It's great. Yay, and they all take a bow together. It's great. The two things that really bothered me, one was the gag about Gonzo having his eyes glued to the television and then having to see him with his eyes attached to a television is one of those things that the minute you start to ponder it, is just awful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like yes. the worst possible version of the of the glue joke. And then the other thing, which is very much a me problem, but I suspect Adam had this problem too, is that if you try to keep track of where the glue is on people's bodies and what's sticking and what isn't sticking, it's not super consistent. This is most noticeable during the tap dance number. That bothered me a little bit. Oh, interesting. Because I, I mean, it doesn't make any sense in terms, like when you see the glue squirting around in the labs, but... I mean, Gilda in particular is like incredible with the placement of her hand. 
Yeah, it's the other hand and the shoe. Like the sh- yeah, the shoe bit doesn't make any sense because the, the the shoe is stuck to her hand, but then she manages to put it on. I assume she couldn't get her shoe on in time. Yeah, that's she only decided that hand. too, right? That it wasn't actually stuck to her hand. She just couldn't get it on. There's a bit that I I had actually never noticed this before um, in all the times I've watched this episode. Just of like clever writing, Beaker has this old timey. Um, exercise thing which is basically a a big slinky which i assume was essentially because they thought it would be very funny which it is but the what they're going to do with gilda in the labs scene is is glue a rope to her and then lift her up and so bunsen has this sort of throwaway line um where he says to beaker um i hope you've been working out or something which is when i hope you're feeling fit yeah i hope you're feeling fit which is when beaker reveals you know the thing and does a little little chest exercise which is just such a great way to like bring that prop into the scene, which then of course attaches Beaker and Gilda to each other. And then going into the finale, the curtain is closed. Gilda is of course behind it. Beaker is watching from the side of the proscenium. And when the curtain opens, Gilda tries to start the number and she can't because the curtain, like the thing is the spring thing is wrapped around the curtain and she has to like walk off stage and go around the curtain, which is just such a great little piece of business that made the whole thing feel very, very real. Like they didn't have to go that hard. <laughs> and, and I love that they sort of thought about like the geography of like who is where and how does this very unwieldy prop make this more difficult. And like, and she's incredibly annoyed. She's really angry at Beaker, and it's very funny. And he is like, Oh no, am I going to get pulled on stage? Of course he, of course he does. Like, I don't know. I, I just love all of those little details. It's even more outstanding when you think about the fact that the stage is also full of holes so that Muppets can be on the stage. So mm-hmm. the fact that she has to do this extra walk around is then also coordinated on a set that isn't all there. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and like, Fozzie being stuck to the curtain and getting pulled up by the curtain, which is actually not, um, he then disappears. So that that's a bit of continuity that is not great. But yeah, like her, her shtick with the hand being like always on her forehead, I thought was just brilliant. Yeah. I was going to mention that Fozzie bit also that he pokes his head and his hand through the curtain and then finds that his hand is stuck to the curtain. And as it draws back and up, he just goes up with it, which is just so much fun to watch. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously, there will be a GIF on the show page. <laughs> Excellent. I love when the guest star just fits in as part of the ensemble. Gilda just works so well, and they all are working so well together. At this point in the in the run of the show, like we have established that this this is a world where none of this is weird, and it's actually really fast because we've gone from like from Chris Christopherson being like, "Oh, this place is so weird." There's there's talking furniture everywhere, to like, well, I guess everything's glued to everything. <laughs> Did you get my seven foot tall talking parrot? Like, it's just, <laughs> this is just where we are. And, and like, Gilda's annoyed, but she's not surprised. Yeah, but she's annoyed that they didn't get her seven foot tall talking parrot like she asked for. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever been more excited to talk about a group of songs in an episode than I am this particular group of songs. Oh, man. So our opening number is one of my favorite Muppet Show numbers of all time. Come on along and listen to a ding a ding a lullaby of Broadway. A ding a ding a ding a ho and boop a doo. A ding a ding you'll sleep all day. Milkman's on his way. 
Perfect number, no notes. Inexplicably no notes. performed by Eskimo pigs. I said perfect number, no notes. <laughs> <laughs> Not just pigs, also penguins and fish. And a bear. And a walrus. There's also a chicken. It's, oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> so good. I love it, I love it. It, it. This was on one of the VHS compilations that was like a Muppet Songs compilation. Uh, and I remember this because I ripped all the songs onto, uh, I mean, we didn't call it ripping at the time. I held a tape, tape cassette player up to the television. <laughs> yeah. Or I, we, we had one of those stereo setups where like uh, we had a, a cassette player that was like attached to the AV setup. So I was able to just record it that way. Oh, so you didn't have to hold up a little Sony playset with a microphone attached no. to it. The- no, the quality was actually pretty good nice. for the time. Anyway, uh, early 90s tech, uh, good times. Yeah, Lullaby Broadway, music by Harry Warren, lyrics by Al Dubin. It was written for a movie called Gold Dickers of 1935, and it won the 1935 Best Song Oscar. Great movie, by the way. Anyone looking for an old movie to watch? Uh, and it's probably on HBO Max, or if it's not now, it will be at some point during the year because it's one of those films that they're rotating in and out. I will look it up while Christy is talking. In more modern times, uh, the song is known as part of the Broadway show 42nd Street, which is based on a movie called 42nd Street, but also interpolated other Warren and Dubin songs. 42nd Street, the movie had Warren and Dubin songs, but they were like, let's bring in all the hits. So it pulls from Gold Diggers of 1933, Gold Diggers of 1935, and Gold Diggers of 1937, and some other non-gold digging films, uh, such as Dames, Roman Scandals, Go Into Your Dance in the Singing Marine. Who knew there was so much gold to be dug in the third? That, that's not even all of the Gold Digger series, because there's at least two more that you didn't list. Whoa! <laughs> gold Digger Surf 35 is on TCM, if you have that subscription, and is oh. rentable on uh, iTunes, Amazon, etc., but it is not on HBO. But it might be by the time this yeah. episode goes out into people's podcast feeds. Right, right. So check. Uh, Just Watch, an excellent resource that does not pay me anything to say that. <laughs> So a few notable things. One, it's worth mentioning, Muppet Wiki points out that this is the first appearance of the Muppet Penguin, uh, who was designed by Brian Henson. And there's a whole lovely story behind it of Frank agreeing to perform uh, with Brian's puppet and and Jim being really touched by that. So, How old was Brian at this time? In his 20s, I think, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So like an adult, but, you know, just joining. And so... It's pretty cool. The penguin moves in a really cool way. He was in his late teens. He was born in 1963. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. There you go. The um the the pen like the head and the body don't don't move together in a really neat way on the penguin. He's fun to watch. Oh my gosh, when he starts dancing, it's my favorite thing. <laughs> you call you gonna talk about the penguin? Oh, I mean, having built one Muppet style Muppet penguin myself and then made a hundred <laughs> paper Muppet penguins for people to throw at me when I get married, because why get married if nobody throws Muppet penguins at you? Obviously. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're not easy to build, but they're very rewarding to build. That's what I have to say about that. So if you don't know this song from The Muppet Show or from 42nd Street, it's possible that if you watched TV in the 80s and 90s, specifically SNL, because this is where I remember this from, uh, you know this melody from something else. So uh, this is interesting to me that, cause this to me is like such a local commercial. 
Like it was impossible to turn on a TV in the New York metro area and not not hear this. And in the center of it all is the Milford Plaza. Stay at the Milford Plaza Hotel with cocktail dinner and breakfast for $49.50 per person. Discover why we are the lullaby of Broadway. The Milford Plaza is the lullaby of Broadway. $49.50 for all that sounds like such a bargain, but also thinking about what you could buy at that time is actually quite expensive. Yeah, I mean, just for inflation, it's not terrible i didn't actually do the calculator this this week but still when i hear it and they say you'll find out why it's a lullaby of broadway i think because they're gonna murder you (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah so this was a national commercial christy you you had this too oh yeah i mean i so i i stayed at the milford plaza rip once in 99 or 2000 with my dad and we only stayed there for a night, but like the whole time my dad was singing the song and he knew it from it running during SNL every week. Yeah. So this commercial ran from around like 1981 or two uh, through at least the early mid nineties, maybe later unchanged. Um, it, it opens with a shot of some Broadway marquees. They were the same Broadway marquees. Uh, it did not matter if the shows were still running. It was ubiquitous and like it was, and like, and the Milford Plaza, what it, the hotel's still there. It's not called the Milford Plaza anymore. Like, is in fact in the center of it all. So, like, you walk by it, you see the big neon sign from several blocks away, and you start singing. Like, it's it 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 was completely ubiquitous if you lived in New York City. I don't know what else to say about the commercial, but I love it. We will have it in the in the show notes. Did the lights on the last three letters actually go out at one point? Yep. Or is that an yep. urban legend? In the, the, the last days of the Milford Plaza being the Milford Plaza, part of the sign went out and it gloriously read Milf Plaza. <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> um, it is still there. It is, it is rebranded. It is no longer the Milford Plaza. but um, Or even the Milf Plaza. In the center of it all. Or the Milf Plaza, alas. So I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but you know we have a podcast, which means I get to play this clip. So I'm going to play this clip. So in... <laughs> 42nd Street. It is a climax of 42nd Street. Arguably, um, the entirety of 42nd Street is climaxes. Like it's just big tap number after big tap number. In the show, uh, Peggy Sawyer, the ingenue, has left the show within the show to go back to Allentown, and the director comes to find her at the train station and bring her back because they need her. And in the original production, uh, he was played by Jerry Orbach, and they performed this number on the Tony Awards. And uh, if you are not moved by the speech, you are dead inside. Now listen, Sawyer, and listen good. Even if you don't give a damn about me, think of all those kids you'll be throwing out of work if you don't do this. Think of the songs that will wither and die if you don't get up there and sing them. Think of the costumes that will never be seen, the scenery never seen, the, the orchestrations never heard. Think of our show and the thrill and pleasure it could give to millions. Think of musical comedy, the most glorious words in the English language. (laughs) Sawyer, think of Broadway, damn it. Come on along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway. I mean, come on. (laughs) The best. It's the best. We did 42nd Street in high school. I was in the chorus. I was in the non-dancing chorus because I can't tap dance. So I basically just like was like standing in the background, like next to a suitcase, just like swaying. But I remember I I had a crush on the guy who was playing Julian Marsh, the director at the time. 
And in retrospect, it was because I listened to him give the speech every day. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, how could you not? It's a very um, stirring speech. It's just, they just literally don't make them like that anymore. It's a, it's a massive, massive show. And it was revived on Broadway in the uh, early 2000s, I think in 2000. And then that production was revived in London just a few years ago. And that was filmed. And it's available on Broadway HD. And I think if you have a paid PBS account, and despite it having the weirdest accents in the history of the English language. If you've never seen it, I really cannot recommend it highly enough. It's just like all all singing, all dancing, musical comedy, the most glorious words in the English language. There's nothing wobblier than an American accent in a West End show. And, and yet, <laughs> this is wobblier than that. <laughs> like, I don't know if you've watched this. It is, they don't sound human. But that's not why you watch 42nd Street. It's fine. <laughs> just watch it anyway. It's okay. Wait, but Christy, I have to know, the whole time we were listening to that clip, were you thinking about Jerry Orbach's eyes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. When am I- anyway, to David's point, Kermit introduces this by uh, saying that we should take a moment to consider the folk music of the North American Eskimo, which I do think might be a little bit problematic. And then he says, here's a traditional lullaby from beyond the Antarctic Circle or somewhere. I, I just wish he'd like, gone there with the joke and said beyond the Antarctic Circle or maybe the Columbus Circle. But maybe that's too New York. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and then like a whatnot pops up out of the ice at one point and says, hey, Norton, I don't think this this is 42nd Street. And like, is that a Honeymooners reference? Like, there's I assume a, so. I assume so too, but he doesn't look like Ralph Crampton. There's a lot going on. I'm well, not mad Ralph about Crampton anything. drove a bus. He wouldn't have worked with Norton. <laughs> oh, got solid point. So he's he's just Norton's random coworker. Right. Now I like the idea that Norton works with Muppets. <laughs> So I'm looking up whether you should use the word Eskimo, and the answer is probably not. I mean, not that the people were going to know that in the 70s, but... Oh, interesting. I, that wasn't why I was thinking it was problematic. It was more that they're, they're doing America... All, they're wearing they're stereotypical in, clothing and dancing in front of... Well, yeah, that, like, they're in the Antarctic and, yeah, all of that, not, yeah. not, the, not the word. But yes, let's add the word to the list, too. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Yeah. Well, on on that note. Weird. Why did they want the igloo? What? Why did they want the igloo? Well, maybe someone broke their egg. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Our next number is exciting for a few of us. I'm just going to say this number is so exciting. I wore a special T-shirt for it. Yes, I know this is a podcast. I don't care. Even we can't see you. Oh, man. (laughs) Will you describe your T-shirt? Yes, I, I am wearing a, a t-shirt from the Shakespeare in the Park <gasps> Joe Pat production of the Pirates of Dance. Oh. Yeah, that I bought at the Broadway Flea Market, where I buy most of my clothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. <laughs> Not to say that I don't think about Pirates of Penzance all the time, but usually I'm only thinking about it during a leap year, because whenever there is a February 29th, there is a group of friends with whom I will gather to sing the entire score of Pirates of Penzance. So, wow. Beautiful. For those who aren't familiar with the Pirates of Penzance, February 29th figures prominently in the plot. Yes. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. How did we get to Pirates of Penzance or anything of Penzance? Have you got my parrot? Your what? My parrot. My seven foot tall talking parrot. <laughs> A seven foot tall talking parrot? Right. I wrote you in the letter. Yeah, well, well, I got your letter, but I couldn't quite read your handwriting. Parrot. What'd you think I asked for? 
well, I, I wasn't really sure, but I thought it was a... Never mind. A seven-foot-tall talking carrot? Watch it, lady. I'm a star. I sang the hit song from Cole. Cole? Cole Porter? Cole Slaw. They paid him a huge salary. I love the Muppet Show. <laughs> so good. Uh. So yeah, poor Gilda wanted to do the Parrots of Penzance, and she's now stuck with the Carrots of Penzance. Specifically, a medley of three songs from The Pirates of Penzance, music by Arthur Sullivan, libretto by William S. Gilbert. The S uh, stands for Schwenk, by the way. <laughs> a thing that I said to people uh, in many contexts uh, in early high school. I was like, did you know that you know William Gilbert of uh, Gilbert and Sullivan's middle name was Schwenk? I'm glad you used it in many contexts. I feel the word schwank should be universally applicable in many situations. Yeah. yeah I was just like, I, I just want to tell you this fun fact. And it's, you know, the response is usually like, you know, little girl, this is an Arby's. Um, <laughs> and schwank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And the Pirates of Penzance uh, premiered in, even though it was written by uh, British writers, premiered in New York in 1879 at the world's first air conditioned theater. Hmm. The Fifth Avenue Theater. How swanky. Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> Wait. Uh, a theater that uh, no longer exists that was on 28th Street. 28th and 5th, as it turns out. And yeah, and then it premiered in uh, London in 1880. Uh, so yeah, shout out to the public domain. And after this moment in the sun on The Muppet Show, it was revived very successfully uh, by Shakespeare in the Park slash the public theater, as it's known now, in 1981. And uh, it starred Kevin Klein and Linda Ronstadt, and they ended up making a 1983 movie that slaps so hard. Uh, to be Kevin Klein's mustache oh. is a glorious thing. Truly. I mean, Kevin Klein is a glorious thing. But yeah, I, I watched that movie uh, every day for two weeks in high school, and the rest is history. Here we are. Let's hear the individual songs. Our feelings we with difficulty smother Culty smother When our vegetary duties to be done To be done I'll take one consideration with another With another A, a carrot's lot is not a happy one So that's the policeman's song. I'm so happy right now. I love that song so much. It's delightful. My um, only complaint is that uh, the, the little Oz there were the carrot's backup group which is the singing vegetables that we have met before but this time they're in the foreground they're very close to the camera and if you thought that that toothy eggplant was bad before wait till you see it in the high def <laughs> right up next to the camera because it's the teeth and also it looks like it's rotting a little well it looks kind of leathery I don't know there's just something about it <laughs> the carrot on the other hand is gorgeous oh, glorious exquisite <laughs> so good and such a great character like it's not character. just like hi i'm a carrot but it's like uh, yes <laughs> thank you <laughs> it's not just like hi i'm a carrot but it's like hi i am a carrot who is a thespian <laughs> and the attitude is just beautiful the second song is mabel the ingenue character in pirates of penzance's big big number Oh, one, if such poor love as mine can help me find true peace of mind, why 
I want to say something about this quickly that also ties back to Lullaby at Broadway, which is the numbers in this episode are so meticulously rendered. This could be, I mean, yes, it's very jokey. Yes, Gilda Radner's not like a, you know, tremendous singer. But, I, you know, one of the things I love about Lullaby Broadway is like the arrangement is so good and there's like embellishments and, you know, like the, the harmony here, you know, even though it's jokey, they still nail it. Mm-hmm. Is this in the it. Linda Ronstadt key before Linda Ronstadt had needed the Linda Ronstadt key? No, it feels it like Linda be, Ronstadt, right? Uh, yeah, so it was a big scandal at the time when Linda Ronstadt was cast in this role because she's not a lyric soprano that they lowered the songs for her so she'd be able to do it. Uh, which you know, as someone who doesn't know from Gilbert and Sullivan, it makes absolutely no difference to me. But apparently, people had opinions. No, even just when I went back and watched the trailer the other day. In hearing a snippet of Linda Ronstadt, I was like, oh, no, this is wrong. And I don't have that feeling about hearing the Gilda clip. So even if she's not singing it in the original key, it's not as egregious. I mean, what's really egregious about the Linda Ronstadt version is that they use an electric bass in the orchestra, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) (laughs) We can revisit this when we get to the Linda Ronstadt episode. I have other thoughts about Linda Ronstadt. The last song is one that is, to this day, pretty ubiquitous in pop culture. Here we go! I'm a very marvel of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England. And I quote the fight historical. From, from marathon, marathon to Waterloo and all the categorical. And military knowledge, though I'm plucky and adventuring. Has only been brought down to the beginning of the century. But still in matters vegetable. Animal and mineral. I am the very model of a modern major general. But still in matters vegetable. Animal and mineral. I am the very model of a modern major general. I love this. I was waiting for the, I I was wondering as they sang that final chorus, are they going to sing, he is the very model or she is the very model. And it was none of the above, but other than that, no notes. (laughs) They do this pratfall at the end. They didn't even need to, but they just add a thing where they're both taking a bow and seven foot tall talking carrot bows into Gilda Radner, who just falls down. It's great. (laughs) Rather infamously in, I believe it's the second episode of the much maligned TV series Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. <laughs> there is a point at which, uh, you know, so that that show revolved around an SNL type show and uh, that needed like an image rebranding. And the, the moment that is decided to be like the brilliant thing that is going to get the show back on track is a, a parody song to the tune of this. Aaron Sorkin loves him some Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> and it's it's just it's very funny i watched this episode quite recently actually and uh yeah the idea that oh i know what is going to win the hearts of america a gilbert and sullivan parody uh (laughs) is uh it's just delightfully bizarre and the thing that was on network television in uh the year of our lord 2006 Yeah. yeah Uh, so there, there are all sorts of uh, famous parodies of this. There's Tom Lehrer's Element Song. It also was in one of the Minions movies or Despicable Me movies, but with the Minions speaking in their really strange language that feels offensive. Why? I can't put my finger on it. It just does. Um, yeah. There's the Animaniacs, very model of a cartoon individual. Yes. That's a fun entry. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about the, the public domain. 
let your imagination run wild. And a good patter list song. That's why I was able to write a parody of this for my friend's wedding and nobody came after me. <laughs> this was my first introduction to this song or to the Pirates of Penzance in general. But my second introduction was in the the off-Broadway parody show, Forbidden Broadway. In their early seasons, they did a whole sequence parodying the Kevin Klein, Linda Ronstadt production. And although I didn't see that, it's on their cast album. And it's interesting that Modern Major General is not one of the songs they use in their parody, but Poor Wandering One is. So uh, that was my first introduction to that song and several others from the score. Uh, And it's weird that this is a very, very famous score that I know primarily through parodies. Hmm. Uh, We should point out that the carrot is played by Peter Friedman, you know, our favorite Muppet performer turned Broadway star uh, slash succession star and many other things. I assume he's, he is performing the carrot completely and not just the voice. I think so. He was, he's listed in the end credits as like a full member of the Muppet cast. So yeah. He's also fairly tall. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it, it, watching it again, you know, we mentioned how great the carrot is, but like, it's, it's really interesting. Only his mouth moves. Obviously his whole body moves. Right. But, and, and it, so like, he's so expressive. Like there's sort of an illusion that like the eyebrows move or the eyes are doing something. They're not, it's just all what he's doing with his body. And it's really amazing to watch. He's full body puppeteering this puppet, even though only the mouth moves. Yeah. And the legs, the little roots walk around. And and just like the detail of like, he's wearing a little tuxedo, but he doesn't have any arms. Um, Just like it's, it's so beautifully constructed for a thing that I'm pretty sure only gets used this one time. Yeah, great. he's very dignified yeah. for a seven-foot-tall talking carrot. It's surprising that the Venda face principle didn't get applied to this guy, because it is a very intricate Yeah, object. and it's too bad. Like, he's a great character, as you said. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they use him for three numbers, just all in a row. On a completely different note, we have the return of Marvin Suggs and some of the Muppaphone, a truncated Muppaphone. My friends, which doctor he taught me what to say? My friends, which doctor he taught me what to do? I know that you'll be mine when I say this to you. When I say, This was the first time that I ever really stopped to consider Marvin Suggs's accent, which I didn't remember being this pronounced. Apparently it's supposed to be French. What? Really? Wait, yeah. On um, the Commitment podcast, when they were talking about it, they had found an interview with Frank Oz where he was talking about Marvin Suggs and Frank based him on a French acquaintance of his. Huh. I mean, that's I, I got more like Balky from Perfect Strangers off of that than French. But he's got like the mariachi sleeves on his shirt. Yeah. All right. I love this performance. Oh, it's great! It's fantastic. So, so this is Witch Doctor, which I was delighted to discover was written in 1958 by Ross Bagdasarian. If that name sounds vaguely familiar, and it might, it might not. Uh, it certainly does to anyone who's ever studied up for Jeopardy, right, Christy? <laughs> sure, yeah. And or uh, listen to our uh, Charles Aznavour episode because Gregory Maupin name dropped oh, him right. at one point. Yeah. 
uh, Ross Bagdasarian, uh, creator of Alvin and the Chipmunks. And what's funny is he wrote it under the stage name David Seville, which was also the name of uh, Alvin the Chipmunks' manager. <laughs> well, I don't think that's an accident. I think that no, no, it's 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 just it's just funny that you know it's the whole fictional world of Dave, Alvin, Simon, Theodore. So was it a yeah. Chipmunk song? I mean, I guess you're about to yes, guess, but this was the Chipmunk song. This was their the the. I don't think I think the Christmas song came first, and this might have been their follow up. I think so. Yeah. Um, it, it peaked at number one uh, on the Billboard Top 100, which was the chart prior to the Hot 100, which I think went into effect in like 59. So like soon after this. But yeah, it was a hit for three weeks and was apparently the number four song for 1958, according to Billboard. <laughs> what that says about 1958. Yeah, I learned a lot of wild things about Alvin and the Chipmunks. Uh, they have a Hollywood Walk of Fame star, apparently. And Bagdasarian Productions, which is run by Ross Bagdasarian's children, or one of his children, I think. Which chipmunk? Unclear. Um, <laughs> uh, but they, they put the whole Alvin the Chipmunks brand up for sale last year for $300 million. <laughs> you know, to steal it twice the price. Um, also... Ross Bagdasarian, a cousin of playwright William Saroyan. Yeah. I found this really great quote in a Life magazine profile that was written by Shana Alexander. This is from 1959. She said, though Americans have always been partial to rodents, Peter Rabbit, Mickey Mouse, Bugs Bunny, this is the first time we have elevated a chipmunk to folk hero status. It is also the first time in the annals of popular music that one man has served as writer, composer, publisher, conductor, and multiple vocalist of a hit record, thereby directing all possible revenues from the song back into his own pocket. What is more, Bagdasarian does four vocal parts single-handed or single voices. Most remarkable of all, he can neither read nor write music nor play any musical instrument in the accepted sense of the word. What he lacks in musical techniques is amply made up by his amazing virtuosity on the tape recorder. I mean, wow. you got to give the guy a lot of credit that he managed to, sp- to spin out of one novelty record a multi-million dollar entertainment empire that has now entertained at least three distinct generations with a brand that has managed to evolve over time. Like it's, it's really pretty impressive. And like, even if it never got as big as Disney or Looney Tunes, it also like stayed relevant in a way that those, especially the Disney characters, like really struggled to like Disney managed to succeed because they kept, creating new characters and new stories and spinning outward and outward and, and really like lost uh, for many decades at a time, a sense of like who their core characters were, but Alvin, Simon and Theodore, and to a lesser extent, the Chipettes, like they've looked different in each generation and they've had uh, sort of a different vibe to them, but they, they spoke to each generation in the way that they needed to and remained on top. I respect that. Yeah. I think part of that has to do with the fact that it, it is a, a family business. Mm. Um, Ross Bagdasarian died fairly young. He died at age 52 of a heart attack and he willed the whole chipmunk business uh, to his wife and kids and they kept it going. His, his son, after he graduated from college decided to like really spur the like second generation of uh, chipmunk content forward in the late seventies. So, yeah. 
they believed in it. All it takes is, you know, three chipmunks in a dream. <laughs> the podcast, uh, I hate it, but I love it. Just did an episode uh, longer ago than just when you're listening to this uh, about um, the chipmunk adventure, which I have we have talked about on the podcast because they did Quanta Lagusta in that movie. It sounds wild. Huh. I they, they they come down on the side of not watching it, but all, then I was like, I have to watch it, so <laughs> oh. um, I haven't yet. But um, but yeah, they okay. get into the yeah, it's a lot. We'll report back when you do. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if I actually get there. So the lyrics of the song. <laughs> Yes. Are we, Let's are we get there back yet? To the are song. we? Okay. Please, please do. <laughs> so to get back to the song, I mean, the, the song is not without its problems. the The Muppet iteration of it is a delight and a wonder to watch. Um, singing gibberish words in a fake African language is not great. Marvin Suggs himself is great, and the Muppophones are great. And when Marvin Suggs yells "Modulate." all the Muppophones shift over one, which is such a beautiful execution of the Muppets loving to yell modulate. And they, they make the, yeah, they execute this joke perfectly. The only thing that holds that joke back from being absolutely perfect is the fact that there is no correlation between their position and what note comes out of their mouth when he hits them. Like I'm he, okay with that. he hits them in totally random order and they just know the song and sing the next note. So on the one hand, like I'm glad that, that the Muppophones know what they're doing because Marvin Suggs clearly doesn't. Is it at least consistent? Like does the same one sing, no. or the same one sing E? No, I tried to keep track. I even just tried to keep track of whether the same Muppophone is singing as is currently being hit by one of his mallets. Hmm. And they, they get it almost a hundred percent of the time, which considering that Frank Oz was probably just on a tear. Right. I wonder if they rehearsed who sang each thing or literally was like, if you feel Frank hit you sing the next word. (laughs) Interesting. This was definitely like a like a childhood song. Like I, I remember just singing this, but like I think just the chorus. Like I it like totally divorced from any meaning whatsoever, right? Just the nonsense chorus. Cause I don't it's remember. It's very singable. Yeah. And very like silly and and childlike. It's so it's like t- to get back to the potential racism of it, like I'm fascinated that it's my friend the witch doctor. <laughs> That's just a fascinating choice in the lyrics. Like, he didn't go seek out a witch doctor. It's his friend, you know, next door. The witch yeah, doctor. Yeah, the witch doctor. Yeah. And then, of course... Friendly neighborhood witch Yeah. Doctor. I don't know. I'm just so interested in that. Good good job, David Seville. And then, of course, at the end of the sketch, we do see a witch doctor Muppet in a mask and not a cool, artistic, African-inspired mask like we're going to see in a few weeks in my third favorite episode. <laughs> um, but a definitely not okay... <laughs> Caricature. Yeah, definitely an interesting puppet to look at, but also I'm sure not built with any kind of researcher sensitivity. No, and he's got an accent that is weird and <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah. similar to whatever Marvin Suggs is his accent. Yeah, it's true. Maybe he's also yeah, we're, we're in like Jungle Cruise territory with this particular puppet. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah, it's great until then. Yeah, yeah, but Marvin Suggs oh, yeah. spinning around and his hair flying everywhere <laughs> is great. We pivot to the music hall in the UK spot this week. I'll be your 
little honey, I can promise that. Said Nelly as she rolled her dreamy eyes. It's a shame to take the money. Said the bird on Nelly's head. Last night she said the same to Jimmy Wise. Then to Nelly, Willy whispered as they fondly kissed. I'll bet that you were never kissed like that. <laughs> well, you don't know Nelly like I do. Said the saucy little bird on Nelly's head. So many birds. Why are there so many songs about birds? <laughs> <laughs> What's on the other side? The Christmas uh, bird count. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, this particular bird is The Bird on Nelly's Hat. Music by Alfred Salman. Uh, lyrics by Arthur J. Lamb. It was published in 1906, according to the sheet music. And uh, this was the most enduring composition by the fairly prolific Alfred Solomon, who was a German immigrant, original last name Solomon, uh, whose cousin, Victor Kramer, was a successful song publisher and later film producer. And this, I, I mean, I, I fell down multiple rabbit holes f- doing research for this particular episode. But um, yeah, things got uh, kind of as saucy as the bird on Nelly's hat uh, with this story, oh, yeah. uh, because... Uh, Victor lived with Alfred and his family for a couple years, which was great until Alfred's wife left him for Victor. Oh, oh shit. A scandalo. Yeah. Victor Kramer uh, produced some of Charlie Chaplin's early films. Um, anyway. Wow. Poor Arthur J. Lamb, the lyricist, died of a heart attack in his 50s in abject poverty in Rhode Island. Don't know how he got to Rhode Island. He was British, but there he was. But very kindly, ASCAP swooped in and paid for his funeral, which was very nice of them. Huh. The sheet music describes the song as being performed by May Ward, the dainty little comedian. Not to be confused with Kermit's description of Gilda, one of America's brightest young comedians. And I almost fell down a really deep rabbit hole here because May Ward's husband was a vaudeville impresario named Freeman Bernstein, who was the subject of a 2016 biography by Walter Shapiro, his great nephew, titled Hustling Hitler, the Jewish vaudevillian who fooled the Fuhrer. And I really want to read this entire book because uh, in an excerpt that I read on Google Books at one point in her career, May Ward shared the stage with a horse named Bonner who could do math. (laughs) What a sentence. (laughs) (laughs) There's just a lot happening there. Like a lot, a lot. And I'm I'm fascinated. Wow, Um, that sentence had everything. Horse doing math. Hitler. (laughs) What more could you want? I, wow. <laughs> um, there, there's a, a huge swath of this book on um, Google Books if you want to dig deeper. Yeah. Uh, and so this is all pigs in this particular UK spot. Piggy is, of course, the, the Nelly in question. And I was really delighted that Dr. Strangepork made a ca- cameo as uh, her servant. <laughs> With his accent, like they could have so yeah. easily just used the puppet and nobody would have noticed, but he remains Dr. Strange Park at all times, which I am delighted by. Uh, Louise Gold does the primary singing puppet in this. And, you know, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about how she didn't feel like she was ready to do full on puppeteering for a solo. And so she had Frank do the puppet while she just did the voice here. I thought her technique was excellent. You would never know that she was new. Oh, yeah. She's great. I, I love that, you know, I don't always love the musical. I love everything about this. The bird, for for a character without a ton of expression, the bird, who, to be clear, is calling Nelly a slut. That's its job. Is so great. It's such a little asshole. And then, like, Piggy's reactions are, like, <laughs> everything about it is just fantastic and short. It's exactly the right length for a musical number. 
And it's very self-contained. They're all telling the story. Like all three of them sing the ending and bow. They don't stay in character. They're performing a little song for you. It's a little skit. It's cute. Yeah. No notes. Yeah. Uh, Before we go on to the next song, Adam, can you hit me with a mid-course correction? Stand by for mid-course correction. Going to get ahead of next week's corrections section and just say that Witch Doctor predated the Chipmunk Christmas song. And in fact, the Witch Doctor song was not officially connected to the Chipmunk concept when it originated because the Chipmunks were not yet a concept. However, the Chipmunks would later cover the Witch Doctor song many, many times uh, from 1960, most recently in 2012. There you go. Folks, we do research during the show. (laughs) That's how committed we are. (laughs) Uh, Also, this album cover is wild. It will be in the show page. Horrendous. Uh, It has answered the question of, is this racist? (laughs) Yeah. Definitively, yes. Yeah. Or it answers the question of, is this, it's a small world level racist? (laughs) At least. Any hoodle. Yeah. So we get... Another uh, short and sweet bit uh, from Zoot and Ralph. And we have now moved to the uh, post-Muppet Labs portion of the show. Yes. fingers are glued to the piano oops (laughs) so this is body and soul uh which is a a jazz standard from 1930 music by johnny green and lyrics when when there are lyrics by edward Heyman, robert sauer and frank eighton it was originally written for the british performer gertrude lawrence as a cabaret song but then it was thrown into a broadway review later called three's a a crowd it's shocking to me that this was written for gertrude lawrence yeah like it is so atypical of what she was known for. Yeah. She wasn't really a singer. I mean, she sang, but like she was more of a personality. Gertrude Lawrence was the original Anna in the King and I on Broadway. And it was sort of written around her limitations a little bit, but yeah, uh, it was recorded by a lot of people in 1930. There was like a huge explosion of recordings. The Paul Whiteman and his orchestra version with vocal performance by Jack Fulton, a hit number one, And funnily enough, the song was briefly banned from the radio uh, for what was considered pretty spicy lyrics for 1930, but it got popular anyway, because that's how these things work. So there you have it, body and soul. So uh, the stickiness hits its sticky peak (laughs) with our closing number. Your boss just gave you the axe. There's years of back tax You simply can't pay If you're having bad luck If you seem to get stuck Make a curtsy And tap your troubles away (laughs) 
So this is Tap Your Troubles Away, which is a fairly recent song for the time. It's from a musical called Mac and Mabel, very infamous flop from 1974 that was written by Jerry Herman. And uh, to bring things full circle, Mac and Mabel had a book by Michael Stewart, who was one of the co-book writers of the stage version of 42nd Street. Mac and Mabel is one of those shows that has been like written and rewritten and rewritten uh, <laughs> in the intervening years. Uh, and it's about Mac Sennett, who was the head of Keystone Studios, the famous silent movie studio that was the home of the Keystone Cops and Charlie Chaplin and um, some other famous silent stars of the time. And his tragic muse, Mabel Normand, who was an actress who died of tuberculosis at the age of 36 and had a cocaine habit. Like she just, uh, like she had a, a boyfriend who was murdered. Like, golly, it's a really dark story. <laughs> Um, and it makes for a really uh, depressing musical comedy. A great cast album. Oh, my, it, it, yeah, yeah. The thing is, it's like it has an incredible score, like wall to wall bangers. The the last piece of theater I saw before everything shut down uh, in 2020 was uh, an encore's production of, of Mac and Mabel, and I just, I, I, I just, I had a lot of notes. Unlike this episode, I had a lot of notes. I mean, you see why everyone sees it. They love the songs and think like, well, I can be the one to fix it. But nobody has been the one to fix it. And it's been 40 years. So like. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the original production starred uh, Robert Preston and Bernadette Peters. How can you not love Bernadette Peters? Mm -hmm. And yet uh, the Washington Post in their review of one of the pre-Broadway tryouts of the show it included this horrible slash amazing quote. Mac and Mabel landed on the Kennedy Center Opera House stage Tuesday night with all the zip of a wet, very dead flounder. <laughs> Ooh. Yikes. And funnily enough, in the context of the show, the song comes near the end of the show when uh, the character of Mabel is not doing well. It's performed by another character in a sort of diegetic context, um, but it's like very dark and ironic and unsettling. So I I found it actually a perfect choice for the context that it's in in The Muppet Show when shit is getting real. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Gilda's trying to tap dance and, you know, can't get get her shoe on. And then, you know, she's literally sticking to the stage. She's flinging Beaker around. It's (laughs) This is the perfect use of a guest star in a musical number. Like it is so much better when their shtick than when it's just someone performing and there happen to be Muppets. Oh yeah. I would take this over like Rita Coolidge boring the uh, forest creatures to sleep every time. Or even like as much as we love things like Sandy Duncan singing, try to remember with a chorus of assorted Muppets, like that's lovely, but the Muppets are so incidental in that here, yeah. the Muppets are also, I guess, incidental, but but the spirit of the Muppets is so infused into what Gilda's doing. This, to me, sort of crystallizes like exactly the alchemy that I want when a guest star meets the Muppets. You know, and it's this, it's this thing we've talked about this before, and I, I don't want to say too much about it because I want I want to have something to say next week. Um, <laughs> but like. You know, I feel like the, the the Muppet Show is known for, is remembered for being so much about, you know, this this sort of ragtag group of, of show folk trying and failing to put on a show. 
Um, but that isn't really what it's been about for the most part until now. And granted, to Michal's point, it is not about that. This episode is not about that for about 20 minutes, but that's sort of what's happening here that, right, this, this accident happens on stage with the glue. And then Gilda Radner is determined to get through her number in spite of it all. And, and can't quite get there. And, and, you know, next week we're, we're going to see a, a, an even larger backstage plot culminating in an onstage number. Um, and I think that that's what I've really been waiting for. I, I just find that, that so satisfying when the, the two halves of the show come together like this, even, even though it's in this case, you know, a quarter of the show. <laughs> and I think like Gilda Radner's sort of showbiz spirit, you know, as a, as a sketch comic and an improv comic and, and, you know, that, that, you know, infamous Toronto Godspell, like it all just plays into that spirit so nicely. Never mind that jazz. Listen, Turkey. What? And get out of show business. So we have a tiny bit of show business to take care of before we wrap this episode up. We already talked about Muppet Labs when we talked about the backstage plot. There is a very brief Muppet news flash that also talks about glue, but mostly let's just talk about the Muppet melodrama, which seems to present itself as a recurring sketch. It'll only recur one more time. <laughs> so when you see Wayne of Wayne and Wanda fame here and get excited that he has a recurring sketch, don't get too excited, but this is a lot of fun. Uncle Deadly is dangling Miss Piggy from a cliff. There's dramatic music. Uh, Miss Piggy waits for her hero, who turns out to be Wayne, to rescue her. Wayne strikes up a conversation with Uncle Deadly, and the two of them realize they have much more in common than Wayne and Miss Piggy did. All well. Miss Piggy is dangling from a cliff and eventually falls and yells, you think this is funny? Also, there are a whole lot of Muppet feet. Say, I know those boots. Mm -hmm. Weren't you a flamingo dancer in Kansas City? Why, yes, I was. Harry's Boom Boom Room? You caught my act? Uh, I never could figure out how you did that passe double thing, though. Uh, Quite simple, my boy, quite simple. Music, maestro, please. Music. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> succeeds in saying Paso Doble, but it's still very funny. Piggy, as reactor here, is just like, oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, they start dancing and Miss Piggy is yelling, whoa, hoo, hoo, ha. Hold on. It's great. If we ever needed proof of canonically game up, it's right. He- here are two. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and they continue the dance lesson backstage afterwards. Wayne says, am I getting it? And Miss Piggy says, you're both going to get it, and punches them both. Muppets are great. Uh, That must be the glue, all right. Well, what glue is that? (laughs) The one they mend the egg with. (laughs) Well, everyone loves a joke that comes full circle. Full Arctic circle. Oh, no. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Tune in next week when we'll be discussing the Pearl Bailey episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word with a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. I think next week's is my favorite favorite, but it's real close. It's like pretty much a, a, a toy toss. A to- <laughs> it's pretty much a <laughs> toss. <laughs> um, just leave that in. It's fine. Um, and uh, yeah, it's... Um... <laughs>